Nobody has wanted to examine this narrative that the RPF has created around them, around what they've done in Rwanda, how, you know, Rwanda is this development darling, this, this miracle, development miracle. And no one wants to disturb that story, but actually, as Patrick's murder shows, as the assassination attempt on the general shows, and on the many assassinations and beatings and disappearances of human rights activists and journalists and opposition players, you know, this is a far more sinister regime than people want to let on. This is The Way Podcast. The militias needed to have a heads up that I was coming. I personally think they didn't, you know, like in chess. So that's how deep the addiction goes. I've been incarcerated most of my life. Having a conversation with or Bill. They've been given no option, either join or die. Snipers, and it was a military. J. Cole came and hung out most of the choir session. I'm standing at the studio blast looking out into the studio. If you want to know more about The Way Podcast, go to podcasttheway.com. This is Bill with The Way Podcast on FM 91.7, WHOS Source at the top of the hour, and 90.3 WRIU South Kingston at the top of the hour. Today, I'll be speaking with Michaela Rong. She is an investigative journalist and author within the African region, and today we'll be talking about her book, Do Not Disturb, the story of a political murder and an African regime gone bad. Don't forget to share the show, five-star review, like, comment, go to the show, podcasttheway.com. Every little bit helps. Again, podcasttheway.com. And without further ado, I'll play the episode. I can't really give a full-on introduction because there's so much content so in terms of your story do not disturb and talking about the history of patrick karegaya Mm -hmm. where does his story begin how's the start um that's a big question um i think the event that kicked off the book is his death um his murder because um he died in a rather flamboyant and very surprising way He uh, was lured to a hotel room in South Africa, the Michelangelo Hotel, a hotel I'd been to a couple of times. Um, And he was lured up there by an old friend, a Rwandan friend. Um, And uh, while he was up there, a team of hard killers went into the room and strangled him to death. Um, And his body was found the following day. Uh, And this man had been the former head of external intelligence for Rwanda a man who had been very, very close to President Paul Kagame, had known him as a child, had been a rebel alongside him, um, had uh, then uh, gone with him from Uganda into Rwanda uh, when there was a major rebel incursion into Rwanda, um, and had then slowly but surely fallen out with the regime, gone in, fled into exile, set up an opposition party, and then ended up murdered in this hotel room, almost certainly on the orders of his old friend and his former boss. So I had met Patrick a couple of times, uh, like all the journalists who used to cover the Great Lakes and who were there um, after the Rwandan genocide in 1994, I'd met him. He was the kind of sort of almost a spokesman 
uh, for the government. He wasn't just an intelligence chief. I'd met him. He was always very friendly to journalists. I had then met him a couple of times after he'd gone into exile. And he seemed to me a very poignant character because he was somebody who's looking back on his life and had fallen out with a regime was thinking, where did we go wrong? Where did I go wrong as well? During like yeah. briefing and meetings, I remember reading that he was the guy that would crack jokes. He was the one that would light yeah. in the room while Kagame was his polar opposite, the very strict yeah. forward. Yes. yes, if you've ever seen President Paul Kagame, he gives off this rather grim uh, image. You know, he's, he's quite curt. It's very direct. He says what he means. Or, well, <laughs> he gives that impression. Um, and he's not uh, he's not full of smiles. And Patrick was always very jovial, uh, cracking jokes, very approachable. He liked to be around people. He, he liked to be around journalists. He, and um, yeah, he had a, a strong sense of humor. He was very flirty. He liked to drink. You know, he liked to sit down over over the beers. Um, and so he, he became friendly with a lot of the journalists. And, and when he went into exile, it was a, a big shock to people like me. And we were wondering what noise has gone wrong. So I had sort of met up with him afterwards and sort of had him talk to me a little bit about what had happened. Yeah. But, but when I heard that he'd been murdered, then it was like, oh, my God, you know, and then you sort of think, well, there's a story there, a story that needs telling. Yeah, I heard you want to actually, when you met with him, you want to sit down and ghost write a book about him. But then I had the actually, yeah, I'd had a long lunch with him in South Africa um, where he had fled um, a couple of years before he died. And um, I had said to him, Patrick, you know, you're, you used to be the head of intelligence, of external intelligence. You've got, you know, you know everything. You know, you've got a book in you. And can I help you? I had sort of offered to go strike it for him, with him. And, uh, and he had sort of said, oh, well, maybe, you know, he hadn't really shown any interest. So when he died, I remember thinking, oh, God, what a shame he didn't write that book. And then I thought, well, maybe that can be written retrospectively. Uh, and so I thought I'll just reach out to his family and to his, um, uh, his nephew, who had been the one to find the body in the, in the hotel room. And I'll see what their reaction is to that suggestion. And they were very, very sort of enthusiastic and said, yeah, yeah, please do. So that was how the whole thing started. Uh, the book took a while. It took four years. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a big book, too. I remember we planned an earlier date, but then I saw yeah. the full pages and <laughs> had to push this off a little bit longer. But... Yes, it, it's a complicated story. So if you're going to tell the story of how Patrick Karagaya ended up in that hotel room, you, you have to sort of go, and that's what I do in the book, is I go way back to his, his, his upbringing, because although he was a Rwandan, he grew up in Uganda. Uh, and many, many people, <laughs> many of the people who were really important players uh, in the Rwandan Patriotic Front, which was the rebel movement that seized power in Rwanda in 94, um, they had uh, grown up in, in, in Uganda. So I wanted to tell that story and, and, and explain how, how he became you know, a member of the Rwandan Patriotic Front. Yeah, and it's a good read. And to build on some of that context, him and Kagame, they were in Rwanda, but they were forced to move to Uganda because yeah. of a, there was a conflict going on. What what was that? Yeah, well, what happened in the in 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 uh, the nineteen fifties, nineteen sixties was that there was a, a a major change in in the positions of the two big groups that lived in Rwanda. So um, there had been this royal court 
uh, in Rwanda, this tiny little Central African country. Uh, there was a royal court that was um, uh, the aristocracy all were all Tutsis, members of the Tutsi community, uh, which was the the herd, you know, the cattle herding community. Um, and um, and below them, the serfs were the Hutus who did all the farming and the, the hard labor and the Tutsis were the warriors. Um, so the Tutsis were above the Hutu, even though yeah. the Tutsis were the minority, right? They were the smaller. The Tutsis were the small minority. They were the cattle her uh, herders. They were the warriors. Uh, and they were the ones who dominated the royal court. And, and the Hutus were the sort of the serfs, the majority, they did the tilling, they did the, they, they, they worked the land, they didn't tend to own cattle. And, and that was the way it had been for a very long time. Uh, but basically, um, there was a the Hutu revolution. Um, and the monarchy was overturned. Um, and uh, with the, the blessing of the Belgians who had sort of colonized the area. And uh, the Tutsis were sent into exile, the Tutsi royal family, all the hangers on and any sort of members of the, of the aristocracy around it. And they, a lot of them ended up in Uganda, some went into Tanzania, some went into um, Zaire, um, some went into Burundi. Um, and that's where people like Paul Kagame ended up. They ended up in Uganda in these, in these quite grim refugee camps. Um, uh, and there they met sort of indigenous, you know, um, Tutsis who had also happened to be in living in Uganda because that was the way the colonial frontiers had been drawn. And Patrick was a member of that community. Um, so that, that was one of these sort of communities that never really felt at home. In, um, in Uganda, I felt they were treated like outsiders. They used to, they sometimes call themselves the Jews of Africa, which, uh, you know, in, in that they, they, they were there, but they weren't really accepted. Um, they, they had problems getting jobs, they had problems getting proper educations. Um, and so when uh, Yoweri Museveni, who's now the president of Uganda, set up a rebel movement because uh, he was he was uh, somebody who was fighting against the government of Milton Obote and he was looking for young dissatisfied unhappy you know youngsters to to join his movement the 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 tutsis the rwandans who were living in uganda they were they were perfect recruits uh, and so both uh, paul kagame and also um uh, patrick karigaya many many others uh, joined his movement, um, and uh, and that 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 movement was called the National Resistance Movement, uh, the NRM, um, and they became Ugandan rebels. Um, but but that was the first stage of their 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 progress as rebels. Because what happened is is that uh, in 1986, that movement uh, toppled the Ugandan regime, seized power. Uh, and then they were sitting in the, uh, these very nice positions in Kampala. Uh, uh, they had uh, key um, positions in the Ugandan army. Um, and they thought, well, you know, it's time we went home. And they meant Rwanda. For them, Uganda didn't feel like home. So everything changed in 1986. 1986, they turned their attacking towards Rwanda. And is that the Bush War? Um, no, the Bush War was the NRM War. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So now they, after that, they turn it to Rwanda. By this point, Kagame and Patrick. Well, Patrick, he wanted to be a lawyer, right? Was he sort of thrown into this? 
Yeah, he was he was young. He was very bright. He did very well at school. Kagame was very different. Kagame um, uh, sort of dropped out of school, was a bit of a troublemaker. Um, he felt he'd been prejudiced against because he was being treated as a refugee. Um, uh, he was a sort of dissatisfied, aggrieved young man. Uh, Patrick uh, was very different. He did, he did very well. He got top marks. He went to study law in Makerere University in Kampala. Um, but then they, they all joined the, the, the NRM of, of Yoweri Museveni um, and um, they started plotting. Once they were in position in Kampala, um, they, were rally, they rallied around this young man called Fred Rijema, who uh, was the most inspirational and charismatic of, of that group of, uh, of uh, Tutsi, Banya Rwanda um, rebels. And he sort of said, okay, you know, we've helped Yoweri Museveni seize power in Kampala. Now we're gonna uh, claim our birthright, which is we're gonna go back home. And in 1990, they, um, they took advantage. Um, Yoweri Museveni was away at a United Nations uh, General Assembly in uh, New York. And they, they, they gathered up all these weapons that they had been preparing because they all held very prominent positions in the, in the Ugandan army by then. They were generals, they were head of the armed forces, um, uh, and they had, you know, lots of uh, trucks and weapons and disposal. Yeah. And this group had, they became their own group of like friends at this higher position in the army. Yeah, they were sort of like a cuckoo in the nest. So secretly they were planning this invasion for several years and stockpiling weapons and they had their men and everyone who was um, part of that, that sort of Tutsi community knew that this was being planned. But the Ugandan army itself wasn't aware. Um, and then in, in 1990, Museveni was away at the UN and they took that opportunity and they just rolled into northern Rwanda. Uh, and um, and and sort of inv invaded uh, the country that uh, that was being run by this Hutu government that they were determined to uh, to topple. So um, that was the start of the the Rwandan War, um, and um, it took four years, and um, it sort of climaxed when the plane carrying um, uh, juvenile Habyarimana, the Hutu president. Uh, was brought down by a missile, that, missile. There's always been a lot of dispute over who was responsible for that, uh, that missile. Um, he was killed, so was his Burundian counterpart. Uh, the genocide was triggered, and by the time all the killing was over, three months later, the Rwandan Patriotic Front, uh, these young rebels, were in control of Rwanda. I want to bring it to that plane being shot down and the genocide, which... 100 day genocide but first when this war first started fred i'm just gonna say his first name because i can't pronounce the last name <laughs> but fred Rujema, yes yes him he um he was the leader everyone looked up to he was the big yes. person that everyone loved and wanted to support but he died in battle like right off the bat yeah he died on the second day of the invasion in 1990 and i think that's that's important because fred um by all accounts i interviewed a lot of people who knew this young man and they say um he was firstly he was he was the sort of right hand man of uh, of general of um Yoweri Museveni um he was a young 
uh, inspirational fighter. All the troops looked up to him. Um, and he was also someone who was a, a sort of figure for, you know, he was a great peacemaker amongst the men. He would, he would sort of make sure everyone was, was, was singing off the same sheet. Um, and, um, and Kagame was one of his friends, but um, Fred was the charismatic guy. And Fred was the guy who pulled the Rwandan Patriotic Front together um, and gave it substance. Uh, and he led the invasion uh, by the Rwandan Patriotic Front into Uganda um, and was killed. And there's a big sort of mystery about how he died, but he died on the second day. And some people say uh, that it was a sort of stray bullet coming from the, the side, you know, the, the, the side held by the Rwandan army, Habyarimana's army. And other people say, no, it was two of his lieutenants who, uh, you know, didn't like his way of running the movement, didn't want to see him as a future president of Rwanda. And so they killed him while there was still time. Um, and I interviewed an awful lot of people and there's still a hot dispute over this issue and how it happened. But I think the important thing about this chapter is that um, uh, uh, he, the day he invaded, Paul Kagame was actually in America, Fort Leavenworth. He was doing an American training course um, and um, he had to be summoned from Fort Leavenworth and sort of told, Fred's just been killed. You better come over and help us because everyone's in disarray. Fred had been killed. His two lieutenants had been, um, had been killed as well in an ambush, uh, some say. Um, and, and so the word was, you know, this is suddenly, you know, the, the RPF, there was nobody running it. There was no one running the show. Everyone was like headless chickens and incredibly demoralized and in, in disarray. Though so, um, basically uh, Kagame was summoned for, uh, he came to the battlefront um, and he took control. But he wasn't somebody who was very popular amongst the top generals in that movement. No. They had always um, thought of him as a bit of a sort of untrustworthy character. He was the guy who'd been responsible um, during the years in the rebel movement of Museveni. He'd been the guy who had staged any, you know, if there was any need to discipline the troops, if there had been court martials, he was the guy who, who pulled together all the evidence and got the, got the sort of the rebel concerned disciplined. And in, you know, when you're in a rebel movement, that sometimes means that you actually end up being executed. Um, and he was he was in charge of that process. So he was seen as somebody who was um, who was very harsh, very strict, very good at punishing people and not really someone who rallied the troops behind him with any enthusiasm. So he introduced a whole different kind of way of running the RPF. Um, you know, there was a list of punishments that would be doled out if, uh, if for indiscipline. Um, and I think that's been something that has dogged uh, Paul Kagame ever since, that people look at him and they think, you, sh you know, you shouldn't be running the country, it should be Fred, but Fred died in 1990. And I think he's always been very aware of that. So whenever Fred's name is mentioned, he gets very, very touchy on that subject. Yeah, and today Kagame is the president, but this was sort of the beginning of his almost dictatorship-like qualities when he finally took that position. Yeah, well, what I try and just do in the book is to describe how a dictatorship slowly but surely comes into place, because I think, um, you know, Rwanda under the RPF has changed. Uh, when the RPF 
first took over after the genocide, um, there was, uh, you know, they had a multi-ethnic government. So there were lots of prominent Hutu uh, ministers. The prime minister was Hutu. The interior minister, Mr. Seth Sandashonga, was a Hutu. The president, Pastor Bizimungu, was a Hutu. Uh, and the RPF held a lot of the key positions, especially, you know, the security dockets. But there was a sense of, you know, that the, the Tutsis had come in, they seized power, and they were very aware that the Hutu population was going to look at them and say, um, oh, listen, this is just the, the Tutsi royal family has taken over the country again, and here we are, they're going to treat us all like, like serfs. And so they wanted to reassure the Hutu majority, um, and the country was sort of, you know, bleeding after this horrific genocide in which the the Tutsi minority had been had been singled out and between half a million and a million people killed. Um, so they they really wanted to send out a message of, you know, this is not going to be an, an ethnic revenge story. And so they're very careful to have Hutu ministers in the government. But as time has gone by, I think, um, you know, many people would sort of say this is still basically a country in which power is held by a Tutsi elite, a Tutsi minority. Yes, you might have a Hutu minister running a ministry, but behind him, the, the people with the real power will be the Tutsi permanent secretary or his Tutsi deputy. Um, and, um, and also that really all power is held by Paul Kagame, that there's not, you know, power isn't delegated, that this is a very centralized power system. Gotcha. Some of that Tutsi and a uh, Hudu coming back wanting revenge. So we're fast forwarding a bit, but you talk about a lot in your book too, where there's just a ton of gray area where like who's the good guy versus the bad guy. There's just no real clear cut answer. Yeah. Well, I think, yeah, that's one of the things I was trying to establish in my book because um, as a journalist who, who covered the sort of last days of the genocide and then went in there quite often afterwards, um, you know, the signs of the, the massacres that had taken place in, in Rwanda were so obvious. And the RPF had come in and the killing had stopped. And this was the impression that, that we all got was, oh my God, thank God for the RPF. They've, they've, they've ended the violence. And um, this is certainly the message that was coming from diplomats and aid workers were sort of also saying the same thing. So we all had a very positive view of the RPF. And I think as the years have gone by, firstly, that story changed. Uh, and secondly, uh, a lot of you know, evidence came to light that people weren't aware of before. So firstly, there was a huge amount of violence committed by the RPF as they came into the country between 1990 and 94. You know, there were massacres being conducted up north that didn't get reported on. Like unnecessary uh, killings, unnecessary wreaking yeah. havoc. Yeah, people being driven off the land, uh, Hutu uh, peasants who were sort of driven off the land and their families were, were killed. Um, and they were turned into refugees. Um, uh, and then after the RPF um, seized power in um, July 94, um, what, what, we, what you saw was um, there was this mass exodus of, uh, of the Rwandan Hutu population. They just fled because so many of them were frightened of the RPF and also all the people who had helped organize the genocide. Um, uh, in which, you know, 800,000 people, mostly Tutsis, have been killed. All the people, the burgmasters, the prefet, they had, they had driven people into neighbouring Zaire and Tanzania. 
So basically, um, the RPF ended up supporting a rebel group that that sort of went in and broke up those refugee camps in Zaire because they were becoming a massive security problem. But then they, the, that rebel group, which was supported by the Rwandan army, supported by the RPF, they then basically went in and committed a lot of atrocities as they hunted down the people that they held responsible for the genocide. Uh, and that's been very well documented by the UN. Um, and, and I think that was a a big shock to a lot of people and a big surprise because they had sort of come to think of the RPF as the goodies, yeah, the guys with the white hats who had ended the genocide, the killings of the Tutsis. And then what they realized is that they, that they, this was a very ruthless army that had gone into Congo um, uh, and basically done the same thing to a lot of the fleeing Hutus. And they weren't too bothered about discriminating between uh, former soldiers, former militiamen who had committed the genocide, and the, the women who were with them, the old people who were with them, the children who were with them. So I think after that, there was a lot more nuanced vision of the RPF um, that, that, that formed. But um, what, what now you often get is you get a debate between people who insist on still seeing the RPF as the good guys, the guys with the white hats, and other people who are saying, look, they've got a lot of blood on their hands. I even saw you yourself, you thought they were good at first, and it was hard to sort of overcome that and realize, oh, yeah, we've been yeah. duped. Yeah, I think it was. I mean, my book is in part um, uh, me tracking the fact that I sort of came to the unpleasant realization that I'd been very naive at certain periods when I was covering that story. Um, and, and so had many of my fellow journalists. Um, uh, and that we allowed people like Patrick, who's sort of both the hero, but the anti-hero of my book, you know, he was the head of intelligence. He knew what was happening and he lied to us. Um, and, and, you know, many of our RPF contacts were lying to us. Um, and sometimes you knew they were lying and you just sort of thought, well, given their history, given that this is a very violent area, given the role they're playing, given the fact that they're building this, trying to build this sort of model country on the, on the, on the ruins of a genocide, this is understandable. Uh, uh, so, so massive allowances were being made. Uh, but sometimes people also just told downright lies. Um, and, and I think, you know, my book is trying to come to terms with that sort of really messy reality, which is that there are no good guys in these kind of stories. Everyone's got blood on their hands, but you have to try and sort of be honest about portraying that, that, that fact on both sides. Yeah. And I want to get back to the Patrick story and where we left off, but first that lying right off the book, the introduction, you emphasize yeah. that everybody like it's within the culture that everyone lies and it's sort of seen as a good thing to get away with it. Yeah, I mean, that that introduction is uh, controversial and provocative um, because, you know, there were plenty of Rwandans who took offense. Uh, but I felt I had to start the book that way because basically what I'm saying is how do you tell a true story or what you hope is a true story when you know for a fact that the people who you're talking to and have interviewed um, have lied to you in the past. Uh, and as you say, and I say in the book, um, that there's a sort of um, a kind of pleasure, a sort of glee 
uh, at the sort of misleading journalists, misleading Western journalists like me, um, that people sort of think it's quite a clever thing to do, you know, in Rwandan culture. Um, and I just thought I, I had to say it openly because that, you know, um, Patrick was a very complicated individual. He was the head of external intelligence. A lot of the people I interview in my book were had worked in intelligence. And, you know, what is intelligence if it isn't lying systematically, building a lie, backing up your lie, making sure your lie that then gets into the newspapers and on the radio and making sure that diplomats believe your lie and aid workers. Um, and, and, you know, building a narrative, that's what the head of intelligence does. And, and as I say in my introduction, that the incredible irony is that the people who, who, who built that narrative of, you know, the RPF are the good guys and they've restored peace to Central Africa after this terrible genocide. They then fell out with Kagame, went into exile and ended up saying, listen, all that stuff we told you earlier, that wasn't true. Uh, and the trouble is, People don't want to, you know, fool me once, <laughs> fool me twice. People don't really want to listen to that message because it just makes them feel uncertain and also angry, you know. Um, so that, that's been one of the issues. And I've seen with this book that there are uh, plenty of journalists out there who, like me, have gone through this sort of journey of thinking, okay, these guys, you know, have also done some terrible things themselves. Um, but there are also journalists who who stick resolutely to the first version that they heard, and the RPF yeah. are heroes in their book and always will be. Yeah, and that's what you're challenging. You want to fix that initial narrative. Yeah, 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 yeah. All right. So we left off where um, Fred. We mentioned he was killed right off the bat, but then yeah. something I saw that came up that becomes a theme later on, though, is. Kagame may have been responsible for killing him to get into that position? Well, I've certainly heard that story. And um, uh, there's a French historian, Gérard Prunier, who, uh, whose work out on Rwanda I very much respect. And um, he thinks that's he's, he's, um, he's spoken to witnesses who have told him that. Um, I, I, I sort of mention it very much in passing in the book because I... I just don't have any evidence uh, on that front. And uh, um, I think I think one of the problems is when you become a dictator, and I would certainly use that word to describe Paul Kagame, um, you, you end up becoming the symbol of evil. And and especially in this culture which we, where we've been discussing where people fabricate stories and, and where conspiracy theories are just rife. Um, so uh, I think there is a tendency sometimes to blame everything on Kagame. Um, he was in Fort Leavenworth when Fred was killed. He was on this training course that Fred had sent him on. Um, uh, some people believe that the two lieutenants who are often blamed for killing Fred, um, who were young uh, uh, fighters in the RPF, some people believe that they would have done that on Kagame's orders or suggestion. Um, it's quite hard to prove that link, you know. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I just sort of mention it in passing. Uh, uh, and I end up, what I end up saying in the book is, I don't personally know how Fred died. But I think that it, it's very typical of Rwanda that the, this man could have died and there's so much uncertainty. And it, you know, it happened in 1990, which is still quite recent history. But 
we'll, we'll probably never know who killed him, but there were people there when it happened. And yet, you know, because there is this culture of sort of spinning a tale, we, we may never know for sure. Yeah, it's feeding into that wanting to tell an interesting story, catch the audience's attention, kind of like the way we see like JFK, like some people say it yeah, was the CIA, some people say it. Yeah, I think it's very, very similar. And I think also I, I try to say in the book that I think when a young man dies and a young man of huge talent and a very charismatic, inspirational figure, there is this tendency to think it must have been something, a very complicated conspiracy because it seems so it seems so wrong, you know, the timing just seems like this can't, can't have been, it's kind of just been a stray bullet. You know, that's just yeah. too much for a freak accident. There must have been a massive plot behind it that goes all the way back to Kagame. I, I tend to think there was probably a plot behind it, but I don't, I'm not convinced it goes all the way back to Kagame. Um, but I think there, that's a sort of natural human reaction to, we, we just have when, when a man, a young man like that seems to die far too young. Yeah, especially when he has that much power behind him. Stray bullets happen, but I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. Um, moving on a bit, Kagame now takes that position. And then what comes to be known as the 100-day genocide takes yes. place. You don't cover it too much in your book, but yeah. you want to address the story at play and that yeah. could become its whole documentary worth of content, just that genocide alone. Yeah, I, I, I didn't talk that much about the genocide. I mean, I deliberately, when I started writing this book, I thought there are two things I'm going to touch on really briefly, counterintuitively as it sounds. One's going to be the genocide and the other is going to be the missile that brought down the plane. So, um, that, and the reason I don't do that is because, you know, I've read a lot of books about Rwanda in my lifetime and uh, most books about Rwanda focus on the genocide uh, and quite a few look at the missile and the plane and the various conspiracy theories there. And I just sort of thought um, the genocide has been written about so much. Um, you can't do it justice in, uh, unless you do write about it at massive length. So in a way, I just sort of thought I've got to pass through it quite quickly. Um, I, I was one of the journalists who was there quite after the genocide had been going on. I, I got there in July. Uh, uh, for Reut I was working for Reuters new, uh, news agency, so I did some of the reporting at the end there. Um, you know, and there, there are many, many books on the genocide, and uh, I just sort of so I I don't go. I just give us a few snapshot images um, from that period uh, because it's it's sort of you you can't cover it in two or three pages, so you might as well just cover it in a couple of paragraphs. To be honest, makes sense and. I'm going to kind of ask the exact opposite, but for audience members who don't know what the Rwandan genocide is, can you give a brief summary of what it is? Well, what happened was on, on April the 6th, um, uh, a, 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 a private jet that was bringing back juvenile Habyarimana, who was the Hutu president of Rwanda at the time, um, whose army was fighting the Rwandan Patriotic Front at that stage, um, as they invaded the country. Um, uh, he was on the plane, so was uh, the Burundian president and a missile snaked through the sky and brought down the plane. And at that point, there had been a buildup in which, um, uh, the, because there was a sort of rebel movement that was coming in from the north uh, and because uh, this was a government that was um, 
extremely uh, anti-Tutsi. Um, uh, so, uh, you know, if you, if, if you were a Tutsi, you, you found that life was very difficult. Uh, it was difficult to get a job. Uh, it was difficult to get an education. And as this Tutsi sort of led movement had been coming in from Uganda, there was more and more paranoia towards the Tutsis. So um, uh, these um, ethnic militias had started training uh, in the streets. They were called the Interahamwe. Um, uh, train. They had. They were supported by the French army, which had a sort of military uh, cooperation going uh, with uh, Juvenile Habyarimana's army, um, and there was this sort of um, atmosphere of rising ethnic tension, toxicity, paranoia, and the. Of course, there had always been Tutsis who had remained in Rwanda uh, during that Hutu revolution, which we talked about earlier who were sort of poor farmers, um, or they were people who sort of managed to make a go of things. Um, and they were seen as fifth columnists um, uh, and sort of being, you know, allies and passing messages to the RPF as it came into the country. So there's this real xenophobia towards them. And when the, the plane came down, juvenile Javier Romano, word spread immediately that he'd been killed um, and it was, okay, everyone immediately said, uh, in, in the Hutu government said, okay, this is the work of the RPF, and they started the slaughter, you know, you've killed our president, and so at checkpoints on the road, if you were a Tutsi, you, uh, and you were trying to pass along the road, you would just be sort of cut down with machetes by these young men, the Interahamwe, at the checkpoints, um, and it was the slaughter that went on for three months, um, the army was supporting the Interhamwe, so it was, it was uh, local officials were sort of organizing these youngsters, uh, these young militiamen, the army was helping, uh, and they just tried to take out any Tutsi who was, um, who was in the country and was seen as sort of fifth columnists. And, and it was a sort of way of dealing with the ethnic, the idea was this is a way of dealing with our ethnic problem, we'll just mm. kill these people. Um, uh, and that was that lasted until July when the RPF came in and seized power. And then we saw this mass exodus as all the Hutus who knew that they were gonna be sort of held responsible for that genocide. Um, uh, all those burgmasters, the prefe, the prefects, uh, the mayors, um, the local officials, the army uh, and the members of these inter-Hamwe militias, they just sort of headed for the exit headed for the frontiers, crossed into neighboring countries, and they were herding the population, the Hutu population with them as they went. So it was an incredibly traumatic period. They, they, it left the country absolutely shattered and it left mounds and mounds, you know, massacre sites. A lot of the Tutsis um, during that period fled into churches and into stadiums, you know, uh, because they thought they would be safe there. And often the local authorities, the Hutu authorities had said, well, you know, if you don't feel safe, come into the stadium, uh, the stadium. And then they were surrounded in those places and they were massacred. So for journalists who were going into the country, um, I remember that you just used to head for the church because uh, uh, there were a lot of very large kind of almost cathedral sized churches in these uh, um, Belgian built uh, towns and you'd head for the church and that's where you knew you'd find the ma a massacre had been committed and there would just be um, 
piles of bodies or often they had just been very sloppily, clumsily buried very recently in the fields around the churches. So it was absolutely a horrific event. I mean, it was one of those events that has changed Africa forever, Central Africa forever. And also, I think, you know, when people think of the Holocaust and genocides that have marked the world, they think of, obviously, the Holocaust as World War II, but they also do think of the Rwandan genocide as one of those kind of incredible moments where you can't believe how badly people treated one another. Yeah, it was 2 million fled, 800,000 killed, commonly used like machetes clubs torture deliberate hiv infections just yeah there was a lot of rape so a lot of the tutsi women who survived have been multi you know repeatedly raped and and some of them had children they caught hiv in the process it it was it was incredible period and i mean everyone who lived through it is, is still traumatized um and so are their offspring in a way because i think any any you know, Jewish American who's who's got parents or grandparents who were involved in the Holocaust. You know, you kind of inherit the trauma. Um, it, it doesn't go away because you you grow up hearing these stories, or you grow up aware that you don't have any grandparents, or you don't have any parents. <laughs> you know, um, so everyone's been marked by it in that region. We'll return to story in a sec, but it was a short time frame. But you've been covering Africa. Were you? there for any of this did you like see any did you witness anything i was um based in neighboring zaire as it was then called it's now called congo democratic republic of congo i was um a stringer working for reuters then and i remember hearing about the killings but being really just not understanding what was going on you know you heard that this rebel movement had ceased ceased you know had ceased control that well the, the first news was that the plane, the presidential plane had come down and the president instead. And everyone was going, well, what does that mean? What's going to happen now? And I think that the level and extent of the killing took everyone by surprise. I mean, I, I suspect people who, who were working and living in Rwanda, they weren't surprised. But if you were outside the country and you'd never been there, you're kind of like, oh, my God, how what is going on? And I think at the beginning, there was a sort of um, rather clumsy kind of um, reporting of sort of ethnic killings, sort of suggesting these were ethnic antagonisms that go went back centuries, and I, I think it took um, it took a while for the penny to drop that it it was it was an organised you know um, genocide, and I think genocides actually always are that um, people don't do, just go next door and kill their neighbour because they come from a different ethnic group. They are told to do that. I mean that is literally what happened in in Rwanda, that their local mayor or the local prefet would be saying, this is your duty as a citizen. Um, and, and so, you know, people were, were being sort of mustered, you know, able men were, were being told this was their duty to get rid of the Tutsis in their midst because they were, they were traitors, they were, they were fifth columnists, they were in league with these, the rebels who were just a, a couple of days march away. Um, and this was what they had to do to show that they were good patriots. So it was an organized killing. Um, uh, and um, uh, I mean, I, I think, you know, the like of which Africa hasn't really seen before. Okay. And eventually it does end. The RPF comes and takes over power. What, uh, how does the RPF end it? And what does that mean for the country at that point? Well, at that point, it meant that there was, as you said, um, a huge number of, of Rwandans, 
mostly Hutus, almost exclusively Hutus, living outside the country in refugee camps. Um, people who had, and amongst those groups in those refugee camps, the camps there were these young men who um, who had committed the genocide, who who had belonged to the entire who belonged to the Rwandan army, and then you have this this rather empty Rwanda in which the Rwandan Patriotic Front of Patrick Karagaya and, and, you know, Paul Kagame are sort of learning how to run this place and, and, um, and the aid agencies are going in and all the, 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 the sort of buildings are popped with bullet holes. And slowly but surely, the, the, the country gets moving again. Um, and yeah, at, at this point, Kagame and um, Patrick, what are their positions now? Well, Patrick actually joined later, but at that stage, um, uh, Kagame um, was um, defense minister and deputy president. So um, because, as I said earlier, they, they knew that they had to sort of gesture and make it clear that they that, that this wasn't going to be a Tutsi takeover. So they they named um, Pastor Bizimungu Hutu guy president and lots of sort of, there was a Hutu prime minister, Fostan Twagaramungu. Um, uh, but really everyone knew that the RPF was running the show because they were the guys who had won, you know, had, had won the war. Um, uh, so they were sort of trying to sort of make all the right gestures, but, but it was clear who was really in control. Uh, Patrick was actually in, um, in, um, in Uganda, but ended up going there very soon after the genocide uh, ended, moving moving to Rwanda and becoming the head of external intelligence. Okay, I guess what comes next? How does Rwanda? Where where do these two people grow, yeah. and what takes place? Well, well, I suppose what happened next is that Rwanda, well, the RPF, having seized control of Rwanda, ends up pretty amazingly in, you know, invading neighboring Congo and getting rid of President Mobutu, the dictator in neighboring Zaire. And the reason for that was that all of these um, refugee camps on the border were becoming a massive security issue for, for the RPF in that there were all these young men, uh, angry young men who were sort of determined to bring down the, uh, the RPF Overturn that that government, seize their rightful place back in Kigali, um, and they were sort of raiding across the border, blowing up grenades in buses, shooting Tutsi villagers, it, and it was all getting very nasty. And so um, uh, Paul Kagame kept saying to um, the UNHCR, "You need to move these refugee camps away from the." The border they're far too close to us and of course the UNHCR couldn't possibly move all that huge number of people who had had settled in that area and so at a certain stage secretly the RPF the Rwandans um, pretty much set up a rebel movement called the AFDL which was um, led by uh, Lauren Kabila a Congolese former rebel and um, with that as it's kind of um, you know, it's kind of cover. The AFDL was uh, nominally uh, running the show. They uh, invade Eastern, Eastern Zaire um, okay. and the AFDL ends up marching all the way to Kinshasa across Africa and uh, toppling the government of President Mobutu Sese Seko, 
with Rwandan support. So um, the Rwandans have sort of started off invading Rwanda from Uganda, and then they end up invading Zaire from uh, Rwanda and getting rid of President Mobutu. And then, you know, they've basically got the run of this incredibly rich, enormous country, which has got all these mineral deposits, it's got diamonds, it's got gold, it's got coltan, which we now know is absolutely crucial to make mobile phones. It's got timber, it's got oil. Um, uh, and they're sort of the power behind the throne. So Lauren Kabila, this Congolese rebel, the man they, they put in position is nominally the president of of uh, Congo as he re he rebaptizes Zaya Congo, but really the Rwandans are the the power behind the throne, and so that lasts for a while. And it's during that process that we see all these massacres hap happening in in uh, in eastern Congo, the massacres of of uh, Hutus who had fled into the forests from the refugee camps. Um, so it's it's an extraordinary story, all, all in all. Um, uh, Sayer the part they uh, conquered and took over that's where you were located at that time too right yeah um well i had been based in kinshasa and i was actually in kinshasa when the afdl rebel movement seized control of it and it's on the other side of the continent and i remember sort of spending six weeks in kinshasa with all the other international journalists who used to cover africa waiting for the afdl to arrive because um they were marching across the across this vast country and uh, we kept sort of we didn't know if they were gonna succeed but President Mobutu's army was completely demoralized completely corrupted uh, he was dying of prostate cancer and um, eventually the AFDL was at the gates of Kinshasa marched up to the hotel that I happened to be staying in uh, and that was the end of Mobutu he fled to Morocco and eventually died in, in exile in Morocco and and yeah, we were all kind of like, oh my God, these, these guys just marched across Africa and toppled a neighboring country's president. It's extraordinary. And that's part of the reason why uh, Rwanda is a dictatorship now, but people still look at it as this symbol of Africa because they just, the economy is doing so well because of this takeover, because of how forcefully well they've operated. Well, it's a complicated story. Uh, certainly there was a feeling at the time that um, governments set up by rebel movements like the RPF, um, which, yeah, they were men with guns, but they had progressive agendas and they claimed to be in touch with the people and that they were getting rid of, you know, these these kind of old, corrupt um sickening um, dictators like President Mobutu, like Juvenile Habyarimana. Um, and that was something that had happened first, in, you know, it had happened in Uganda with Yoweri Museveni, it had happened in, in, in Rwanda with, uh, with Juvenile uh, Habyarimana being toppled by the RPF, and then in Zaire we'd seen Kabila taking over from Mobutu. And I think there was a feeling in the West of, you know, that these people were sort of seen as, as, as a new breed of leaders. In fact, um, Tabo and Becky called them the Renaissance leaders. Um, and so all eyes sort of turned to Rwanda uh, and people tended not to think so much about the fact that the Rwandans were also helping themselves to all the minerals of Congo while their troops were in position in Eastern Congo. But they look very much at the fact that the RPF was sort of busy doing all the right things on the development front, you know, 
um, building schools, setting up clinics, getting aid programs up and running, vaccinating children. Um, uh, and and the, the, the Rwandans, because the whole world felt that they had um, stood by and allowed the genocide to happen, the international community had not stopped the genocide, uh, and that they owed Rwanda because of that. And, and the RPF made the most of that sort of guilt complex, you know, which was right. It was, it was merited, that guilt, that feeling of guilt was sort of in order. Um, but as a result, Rwanda had a lot of aid um, go, you know, pouring in its direction. Um, so there was small government, very motivated, very, a bunch of very intelligent, driven, well-educated rebels, and they put the aid to very good use. So the story became, after a while, it became, um, look at this amazing development miracle story that's been built in Rwanda on the ruins of, of a genocide. Aren't these people incredible? And I think that's, in a way, where the story tends to be stuck at the moment. And I would sort of say, I think that story has a lot wrong with it. It's got a lot of holes in it. Uh, although I think that Rwanda, I mean, if you go and visit Rwanda today, you know, you would be very impressed. People always are by its neatness, the way it's sort of, it, it's got all these new skyscrapers that have been built since the, since the genocide. It's got Wi-Fi in the airport bus. It's got a new airport. Um, the roads look pristine. There's no litter. Um, you know, there are no plastic bags. They've been outlawed. People don't smoke on the streets. There are no beggars. I mean, it looks, uh, it's often called the Switzerland of Africa. And I think that's the new Rwanda and the way people look at it now. And I would just sort of say there is a price that people have paid for that in terms of their human rights. Yeah, because this book, as much of it is a background of Patrick and his story, it also seems a lot like you challenging Kagame. Even um, national TV, I'm pretty sure he denounced you or like said you're book was bogus or attacked you because that's right no, I, I when I published this book um I mean my book really focuses on the moves um and the strategy that Kagame has taken um after he seized control of um of Rwanda uh, he eventually made himself president um he's won uh, a series of elections with really, really uh, bogus results. You know, he wins 99% in the elections. Um, yeah, and to cut uh, off cut right there, they were in a, so like we fast forwarded a bit where he's now president and they yeah. were in a room there. You bring it up where they say, oh, we should get 70% of the vote to make it realistic. But other people are saying, nope, 100%. He's a, Kagame is a great leader. He deserves 100% of the vote. And that's some of that fake bogus elections that's going on today. Yeah, that's still going on. And I think that's what happens when you're a dictator and you're surrounded by sycophants. And I think um, that those kind of conversations early on, when they took place, people like Patrick, you know, who ends up being strangled to death in a, in a hotel in South Africa, he would be going, no, 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 you know, obviously we have to win the elections, but um, Let's let's make it look as though the opposition got a credible vote. Let's you know win by seventy percent. And what you what you saw in elections, I've spoken to several people who were in the room when that conversation took place that that you you mentioned. 
is um, you saw the sort of sycophantic general saying, no, 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 Afande, they say Afande is a way of saying the boss. Um, you know, he's, he's a great man. He deserves, he deserves more. Um, you know, what's 100%? It's just a number. Um, okay. and, and now, yeah, we're back to these sort of figures of 99% in elections, which is what Habyarimana used to win in elections. And I think, you know, that's one of the things I find so depressing is that we had a Hutu president who rigged elections, and now we have a Tutsi president who rigs elections in exactly the same way. Yeah, either way, it's just tomato, tomato now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right, so bringing it back to the story with the... Uh, rpf and them taking control again yeah. you mentioned how there was that switch where people started realizing oh these actually aren't the clear-cut good guys yeah, yeah. your book mentions for a lot of soldiers and a lot of people that that moment when people realized was seth send us shanga's uh, his death right yeah so that happened uh seth and shanga was one of these hutu ministers that the um RPF <clears throat> reached out to, I mean, he had actually joined the RPF um, from exile, uh, believed in what they were doing. Um, and um, he was named after the genocide, 94, interior minister. And so one of his briefs was to sort of, you know, he would be told every time there was a killing in the countryside of a Hutu villager by an RPF soldier. And that was happening a lot after the genocide. And um, people would say to him, you know, there's been a village and there's been a massacre has taken place. Um, and uh, he would investigate and he would be told by the army, well, you know, these are Tutsis, Tutsi fighters coming over from Uganda. They found their entire family had been wiped out in the genocide by the local villagers. What do you expect? It's a revenge killing. And so revenge killing became this phrase of, well, that's human nature, what do you expect? Um, but he um, increasingly found that very hard to believe. Um, and there were a, a series of events that happened, um, a refugee camp called Kibeho, which was full of Hutus, which was inside Rwanda, unlike these other refugee camps we talked about, which ended up being cleared by the, um, the Rwandan army. And it was a, it was a, a downright massacre. Um, right. They wanted that that refugee camp to be to be removed, and they just opened fire on the crowd, and thousands of people died. And then, when uh, you know nobody intervened to stop it, it the massacre took place over several days, and um, he um, he was just appalled. And when the government sort of um, issued a statement about it, it acknowledged that I think it was sort of three hundred people had died. Uh, in fact, the the number ran into several thousands. Um, and I think that was when he he said Senda Shonga, the interior minister, <clears throat> felt, you know, that reconciliation, ethnic reconciliation was just a, a phrase and that uh, he stopped believing in the in the revolution. That was some of the earlier on mention where the Hutu were afraid with the Tutsi coming in saying, oh, aren't you going to get revenge? And they said, oh, there'll be no revenge. This is that revenge happening. That's right. And uh, I think he, he just full, thought he'd been sold a pup. And he was a Hutu who had um, tried to reassure other Hutu members of the population, um, you know, that 
everything would be okay, that the RPF was not um, a, a movement run solely by Tutsis, that it didn't see things in that way, that it believed in ethnic reconciliation. And I think that that massacre was one of the moments where he just thought, okay, not only have I been sold apart, but I've been selling apart to, to Hutu citizens uh, by telling them they can trust this movement to be ethnically colorblind. Uh, he eventually fled into exile. He, um, he, um, he resigned and fled into exile. And I, I think one of the key moments where a lot of people realized that the RPF had lost its way is he was in exile in Nairobi and he was gunned down in his car um, with, his, um, with his driver um, by um, some random gunman. So it, even at that stage, that was um, in 1998, um, it was a shock assassination and it was a very high profile assassination of a very prominent man who a lot of diplomats had met and um, a lot of people felt he was a man of huge integrity. And the fact that he had not only left that regime, resigned, fled into exile, but had then been gunned down and everyone was pretty clear in their minds that it was the RPF, whatever, you know, whatever was said during the, the sort of pseudo trial that then took place in, in Kenya. I think that was a, a moment where a lot of people thought, okay, these, these guys are not as benign as we thought. There's a very sinister side here. And I think the important part for me about that story is that um, he, uh, when he died, um, Patrick, our anti-hero, our hero of the story, was head of external intelligence. So he would have definitely known all about it. Um, so this is this is part of what I was saying earlier that no, you know, no one in the story comes away with clean hands. Everyone's yeah. got blood on them, um, and and that Patrick, in a way. Uh, was dealt the same kind of cards that he had dealt to many other people when he had been in his prime uh, in a position of power. Yeah, and I want to bring up why Patrick, what goes wrong with him, but this was a common theme with Kagame where past allies, past enemies, past everybody were mysteriously, their cars would crash or a straight bullet would hit them or just bombings in their car. Like this was a common theme. Yes, absolutely. And it dates back to when he took over from Fred in 1990, that if you speak to people who were low down in the RPF, just, you know, junior sort of fighters, they will say there were a lot of senior commanders who didn't particularly like Kagame uh, because of that role he had played, uh, court-martialing rebels in the NRM. Uh, were impressed by him, knew that he didn't have a lot of combat experience because he was an intelligence officer in that rebel movement, um, didn't respect him. They respected Fred. Um, and um, one by one, many of those guys died in mysterious circumstances, even when the RPF was still just a rebel movement, they hadn't yet seized power, that there, there were explosions, landmines, um, or they, they died very suddenly of, of AIDS. Um, and then later, when uh, the RPF had seized power, that these senior commanders who were not amongst the group that admired or, or particularly respected um, Kagame, that they also end up disappearing or being sidelined. Um, so that start, started then, but it, it was something that people like me, journalists like me, we were certainly not at all aware of. I think um, we were sort of more looking at what happened to the Hutu 
Putin ministers, you know, who ended up resigning en masse or the Hutu president who, who remained in position but ended, ended up being sidelined in 2000, Pastor Bizimungu. Um, and then I think more recently, um, you've seen this trend continuing where um, people who stand up to the regime, stand up to Kagame, whether they are judges or politicians, civilian politicians, or human rights activists or journalists, um, they do seem to come to some very sticky ends. Uh, and that's what I log in my book because there's, it's just a whole series of them one by one by one. One of the things you mentioned was the president and that became its own side story where basically Kagame, he put a whole campaign against the current president at the time trying yeah. to defame him and pretty much knock him off so Kagame could get his own power, right? Well, that was it. That You had a situation where Pastor Bizimungu was the president and he was a Hutu. He'd been a prominent uh, Hutu um, official um, during Habyarimana's time. He came from the north um, west of the country, which was um, very much seen as Habyarimana's area. So when the RPF came in, they gave him this, this key symbolic position because they needed to reassure that constituency that, yeah, we're coming in, but, you know, we, we respect that, you know, you're not going to be sidelined, you're not going to be completely passed over as a, as a, as a community. Um, but, uh, and um, so uh, Kagame took the post of vice president and minister for defense. But um, as time went by, Kagame wasn't content with that. Um, and he basically maneuvered to get Pastor Bizimungu removed. And he sort of, yeah, he defamed him. He, there were all sorts of issues that were brought up. There was a lot of gossip. I think it's a very Rwandan thing to sort of organize a, a gossip campaign. Um, so, you know, all sorts of, he was accused of sort of various tax um tax evasions, which seems such a trivial thing, but he was, you know, he was said to be, you know, not up to the job, drinking on the job, uh, all sorts of personal allegations were made. And in the, in the end, um, you know, there was a meeting and, and Kagame um, uh, got the top job. Uh, and, and everyone had always known, every diplomat, every ambassador had always known that Kagame was really running the show in Rwanda. But this was nice fiction, but it, but it was a useful fiction. It was an important symbolic fiction because it was reassuring to the Hutu majority. And Rwanda today is is a country which is the majority of people are Hutu. So you do have to keep them on board and these kind of symbols matter. So um, uh, Patrick Karagaya, uh, the hero of my book, was one of the people who had said to, um, to uh, Kagame, you know, you don't, you don't need to be president, you know, it's, it's, you, 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 you don't need to sort of humiliate this man in this way. Um, and so had other African presidents, Museveni had said the same thing to Kagame and the diplomats, Western diplomats had also sort of counseled against it, but he was determined to get that top job. So Patrick, since the beginning, they've been close, they've been friends. By this point, their family, like their wives or their kids, they hang out together, they play tennis together, they, they're really close, but that was the beginning of sort of a separation, right? Didn't Kagame take offense to that, that Patrick said, you shouldn't take this position? Yeah, that was definitely one of the key issues. 
Uh, and it's very interesting because um, there was this thing called the Akazu. Akazu means little hut. Um, and Habyarimana had had a little hut um, when he was running. Um, and it was a Hutu little hut. And it means, you know, it means your coterie, your club, your, the guys around you, you know, Trump's Trump's got, had a little hut as well. Um, and um, Kagame had a little hut and it was made up, you know, and, and Patrick was in that group. So was this guy, General uh, Kayumba Nyamwasa, who is living in exile now, uh, part of the same opposition group that Patrick, um, Patrick set up, also targeted for assassination, but has so far survived. Um, uh, and um, uh, their wives knew each other. They sat, you know, Kagame's, um, Kagame's wife and, um, and Patrick's wife um, were running a school, uh, a secondary school. Um, uh, they were in business together. Um, all, all of their children used to sort of have play dates together or do sleepovers in each other's houses. So these people were really intimate with one another, really knew each other very well, socialized together and had known each other since their 20s. Well, in, 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 in many cases, they know, known each other since they were children because they'd gone to school together. Kagame and, uh, and Patrick had been to school in Kampala together. Um, and so when they fell out, it became very personal. And what they do in, uh, in Rwanda is you, you get um, ostracized. So when it's known that you are no longer in favor, you, they call it agatebe, and it's, it's, you're on the bench. Um, and um, uh, Patrick found himself being frozen out like that and then being disciplined. And he was placed, um, he was arrested, taken away um, uh, under sort of up into the hills for a while. And finally, everyone thought he had been killed, uh, but he was, he was freed. Um, and when um, he was brought back, um, and what you, the impression you get is that Kagame wanted him to show obeisance, to sort of show like, yeah, you're the boss. I know, I know my place. You know, I'm sorry I've been so lippy. I'm sorry I've stood up to you on these various issues that we've fallen out on these key issues. And um, Patrick wouldn't do that. He was always very free with his opinions, very free with his criticisms. And in Kagame's eyes, that came to seem very disrespectful, very disloyal. Um, and so eventually he was prosecuted for insurrection uh, and ends up in prison, actually imprisoned. Um, uh, and that was clearly sort of the end of his career. Um, uh, so when he came out, when he, he you know, he, he was, he was uh, court-martialed, he went to prison, he, was, he did, did his time. And when he came out, he fled the country. Um, and that was obviously the sort of the end of his time in, uh, you know, in, in an official position. Um, and I think uh, what you see in all of these situations, because he's not the only person in that elite who has gone through that process, is you see someone rising very, very high in their career, and then um, uh, Kagame suddenly becoming very suspicious. Um, and with the general Kayumba Nyamwasa, the same thing happened. At a certain point, uh, Kagame suspects that the man has turned against him, that he's very popular with the troops, that they may be planning a coup uh, against him. He's very fearful. Uh, and so uh, first um, General Kayumba is sent to India to be the ambassador to India, which is a sort of like, let's get him away from the army, get him out of the country, get him as very, very long way away from Rwanda. Uh, but that wasn't good enough. 
Um, and eventually, you you know, you are then told you must apologize. And and then, you know, Patrick and the same thing happened to the general. They, they would say, well, but apologize for what? We don't know what we've done wrong. And it's kind of like, just apologize, write a formal apology. And both of these men refused to do that because they knew that that would be used to destroy their reputation and to smear them. And, and it would also be waved under the noses of, of ambassadors who would, uh, you know, by the government, which would say, well, look, you know, these, these are the people you've been dealing with and this is why they've been sacked. Um, and so they refused and both of them ended up wading across the river that divides Rwanda and Uganda and fleeing into exile after going through that process. So by not staying too in line, by just being, by doing their job, by speaking their mind, still being in favor of Kagame, things eventually turn and Patrick has to escape. He, he does escape. He's talking to journalists. He's, he's doing that and eventually reaches the end of his story. Yeah, he yeah he fled into exile first, uh, and then eventually was joined by the general in South Africa, uh, General Kayumba Nyamwasa, and they set up this opposition party together. And they were joined also by the former Attorney General, uh, Gerald Gahima, and um, also by the uh, former U.S. Ambassador, uh, uh, the Ambassador to to the U.S. for Rwanda, Theogene Rudasingwa. Um, and these are four very important guys in Rwandan, uh, you know, government, you know, the former head of the armed forces, the former head of in external intelligence, the former ambassador to the US, uh, and the former attorney general, all Tutsis, all men who've known each other for decades, all regarded with respect, sometimes with uh, admiration in Rwanda particularly by the army, which would be a very important point. So um, they set up this, um, this opposition party and at that, you know, and that becomes a real issue for Kagame. And so at that point, what you see is him sending out emissaries, um, contacting people, other Rwandan refugees who are living in the same cities as these guys and saying to them, these guys need to die. And a lot of my book is about how that process um, took place and how many people in that Rwandan refugee community in places like South Africa or in the States or in Brussels or in the UK, how people in that diaspora are approached by the Rwandan intelligence um, and, set, and told or asked, like, we need someone to take these guys out. You seem to know them. You seem to be on friendly terms with them. Will you do this job for us? And with that going on, eventually Patrick realizes firsthand evidence that Kagame is trying to kill him. He uh, survives a shot to the hip at one point. What's well, the- no, that that's the general. The general survived the shot to the hip. I know they all have those similar names. Yeah. Oh, okay, so he survives a shot, but Patrick also knows they're after him. Yeah. Well, I- what happened is there was an attempt on the life of General Kayumba. Um, uh, uh, he he was shot coming back from a shopping spree with his wife. Um, a, a man at the gate started waving a gun, uh, shot him, uh, was aiming for his head, got him in the hip instead. Um, and um, the general ended up in hospital where uh, the same team that had tried to kill him, um, uh, shoot him dead, end up sort of trying to send a team to poison his IV fluids or strangle him in, in the clinic. 
Um, and uh, at that point, this, the key members of this opposition group that had been set up in exile realized that um, Kagame uh, is seriously trying to take them out. So um, the South Africans offer them uh, 24-hour-a-day protection. Uh, the general takes it, so does Patrick. Um, but um, so they're living under, you know, they move into houses, uh, safe houses that are guarded by South African police. Um, but at a certain point, Patrick, who is trying to run this opposition party, finds it impossible to do his work. He's he just sort of he's used to being a free man. He's having to report to his minders all the time, tell them where he's going. When he meets friends, they're sitting on the table next door. I mean, that happened to me. I had lunch with him once and and he had minders, two minders sat throughout our three-hour meal. They were at a table right next to us in the restaurant. And Patrick sort of, he hated that. He hated being watched like that. He hated being tracked. He hated not being able to be spontaneous. So at a certain stage, he sent them away, these guys. And he said, I, I'm, I'll take charge of my own security. Thanks, but no thanks. And that really was a fatal mistake because he was meeting a lot of Rwandans in, in the diaspora. Um, and he um, was in contact with a young man called Apollo uh, Kiririsi, who was uh, one of his informants. He was still running informants. He was still basically working as an intelligence officer, but collecting information for the opposition by that stage. Um, and this guy was coming and going between Kigali and, uh, and South Africa and giving him lots of tidbits of information that he found very useful, very insightful, helped him know what was going on back, back home, you know, and if you're running an opposition movement, you need to know what, what the regime is up to. Um, and he was warned against this guy by his friends who didn't like this young man, Apollo. They thought he was untrustworthy. They, they didn't like the fact that Apollo was so well connected in Kigali, but, um, but uh, Patrick trusted him. And one of those days, um, Apollo invites him uh, to go up to his hotel room in the Michelangelo and that, that it was all a trap, you know, and it had been set up um, months in advance and they had just lured Patrick up there on his own and they, and they whacked him there. And that's where a do not disturb little sign is put on the door handle. And yes. that's, where they don't find yeah. about him for a day. Yeah, that's why I called the book Do Not Disturb because um, uh, it happened over New Year. Um, so 2013, New Year's Eve, um, he went up to the room. He was killed there. Um, and the killers, as they left the hotel where they had checked into one of the other rooms, they put the Do Not Disturb sign on the, on the door handle. Um, and so no one, none of the staff went into the room. And even when the nephew the following day, who was getting beside himself with worry, and he was sort of went to the hotel, he was hanging out in the hotel, he'd seen Patrick's car in the car park, he knew that Patrick must be in the hotel. He kept saying to the staff, please go and find out what's going on in that room. Um, and they wouldn't, they refused. They said, it's a do not disturb sign. We don't, you know, we have to respect that. Finally, they, they went into the room and that's where they realized that there'd been a murder there. And he was lying on the bed. He'd been strangled with a curtain um, cord, the, the rope you use to close the curtains. Um, and that's why I called it Do Not Disturb because I thought it told a bigger story about how nobody has wanted to examine this narrative that the RPF has created around um, 
around them, around what they've done in Rwanda, how, you know, Rwanda is this development darling, this, this miracle, development miracle. And no one wants to disturb that story, but actually as Patrick's um, murder shows, um, as the assassination attempt on the general shows, and on the many assassinations and, and beatings and disappearances of, of human rights activists and journalists and, and opposition players, you know, this is a this is a far more sinister regime than people want to lay, uh, let on. And that's what you're addressing with the book. Thank you, Michaela Wrong, for coming out to the show. It's been a pleasure. Is there any final message that you want to tell the audience? Um, I just think I, I know this is a complicated story, um, uh, but I think um, it's always worth bearing in mind that every story is nuanced. And if you're being told a very simplistic story about an African president or an African ruling party or an African country, um, it's almost certainly more complicated than that. Um, I, I often, you know, when I'm chatting with people who don't know Africa very well, I'll say, oh, I, I've been writing or now I've written a book about Rwanda. And they'll say, oh, yeah, yeah, great place. Yeah, I mean, they have a few images. They've got images like, oh, it's an amazing development miracle. Oh, it's got gorillas. Oh, it's got a national basketball <laughs> team that, you know, we had the, they, they had the NBA sort of staging some Patriots yeah. veterans match there. Uh, and, you know, the bicycling's very good there. And, and these are they're just some few very simple images. And um, that's as far as, as they want to go. And if you sort of say, um, well, actually, I think it's, quite a worrying country and I think the regime there is pretty sinister and I do think President Kagame is one of the most frightening presidents in Africa and people uh, either they'll say oh that's interesting or they'll sort of absolutely reject it out of hand um, but you know if it, it's always worth looking a little bit more closely at the story. And that was Bikela Wrong. She's an investigative journalist down in the African region. And that was her book, Do Not Disturb, The Story of a Political Murder and an African Regime Gone Bad. Check out our website. You'll see links for that in the description. You'll see the book in the description too. Be sure to go to podcasttheway.com for more information. Give a five-star rating, review, like the show. Every little bit makes a difference. It really helps. Thank you. And again, that's podcasttheway.com. This is FM 91.7. WHOS stores at the top of the hour and 90.3 WRIU South Kingston at the top of the hour. And as always, deuces. This has been the Way Podcast. If you want to know more about the Way Podcast, go to podcasttheway.com. Mm-hmm.